0: This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. All of us were shocked and saddened several weeks ago at the untimely sudden death of Bernard Tyson, head of Kaiser Permanente. We wish here to express our condolences, Bernard Tyson's family. He was a great man and he will be much missed. His is an inspiring story from humble beginnings to heading up one of the most powerful health organizations in the country. Just a few weeks ago, we had a great interview, and we've decided to go ahead with it in two parts. We're going to do the first part this week, the second part a week later. He discusses his humble beginnings, discusses how he climbed to the top, and most important, his visionary leadership for healthcare at a time when such vision is needed as never before. But first, what's ahead? Well, there's only one really big thing this week, and that is Thanksgiving, the most popular holiday in America for at least hundreds of millions of people. But it's also a time when families learn the virtue of diplomacy with those relatives or friends who just can't seem to resist stirring things up. So let's be grateful, and let's all be on our best behavior and enjoy the great food. Now, The world, however, doesn't stay still. No one is paying attention to the riots racking Iraq. Iraq is the second largest OPEC producer. The violence in Iraq today is the worst since they defeated ISIS back in 2017. Where will this go? Will this enable Iran to tighten its hold on Iraq and make it a pawn in the Middle East game? Watch what is happening there. Attorney General Barr really laced into the far-left this past week, and you're going to hear more about the IG report coming out any day. That is going to overshadow the impeachment hearings because it gets to what happened in 2015-2016 when certain individuals in the FBI and the CIA and elsewhere decided to try to upend the campaign of Donald Trump. On the economic front, Tuesday. We'll get the Case-Shiller Indices about housing prices around the country. We'll also be getting that day reading on the consumer confidence. The Consumer Confidence Index comes out. What will this foretell about the shopping season, which gets fully underway, at least officially, on Friday after Thanksgiving? I don't know why they call it Black Friday. Black to me means stock market crashes and the like, not profit. But anyway, that's what they call the thing, Black Friday. We'll also be getting this week, reports on oil and gas inventories. Oil comes on Wednesday, gas will come on Friday. Once again, as the U.S. produces more and more, this will affect the prices of stocks in the energy sector which continue to be under pressure because of the very fact, we're producing oil and gas as never before. Now, the first part of my conversation with the late, great Bernard Tyson. My special guest today is Bernard Tyson. He's Chairman CEO of Kaiser Foundation Health Plan Inc. and Hospitals, popularly known as Kaiser Permanente. Bernard, thank you so much for coming in today.
1: My pleasure. It's great to be here.
0: Kaiser Permanente is the largest nonprofit health care plan. It has Bernard, what, 13, almost 13 million? Almost 13 million. And in a community, as you like to point out, of 66 million. 67. 67 million now. And hospitals, 39, over 700 medical offices. You employ 218,000 people, including almost 23,000 physicians, 59,000 nurses, operating revenues of, at least last year, of $80 billion dollars and you have a tie with the Permanente Medical Groups.
1: They actually operate in a self-governed model called the Permanente Medical Groups. They are fantastic. We actually have over 25,000 physicians. They are independent of the health plan hospital, but contract exclusively with the uh, health plan.
0: It's amazing. No wonder Time Magazine called you one of the the 100 most influential people in the country, if not the world. Uh, But let's begin. Uh, how you got involved with it. Your father was a carpenter and part-time minister. There's precedent for that in Christianity, <laughs> you might say. But with your, uh, your mother, she had uh, severe diabetes over time, and you spent a lot of time in hospitals. Walk us through the care that she got and how you decided not only to get interested in it, but you saw a model that was not repeated elsewhere, and this is sort of guiding you in how you're running Kaiser Permanente to this day.
1: Yeah, when I was growing up, uh, we had a a very close-knit family. Uh, My father worked as a carpenter, but he also was a a minister. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom who raised the kids and everything. And uh, she's still alive, and bless her. Um, And she suffered from diabetes, and often time had to spend time uh, in either the hospital or in the physician's office. And, you know, as a child, what I always saw was this wonderful doctor who loved and cared for her as well as us. And he made sure she got the care that she needed in a hospital setting or uh, in his uh, office. And my assumption was, and actually it's from that experience, I've always wanted to be a doctor. And to this day, I still want to be a doctor. We're opening up a medical school next year, as you know, and I've been hinting that maybe uh, they'll let me go to medical school. But so far, uh, no one has said, we'd like you to join. So I'll just keep imagining uh, someday being a a physician. But I thought from that experience that everybody— You you couldn't
0: put a good word in for the admissions committee to give you a (laughs) little—
1: No, it's a level playing field. (laughs) So I thought that growing up, from that experience growing up, that everybody had access to the highest quality care and what's available, et cetera. And that's when I later discovered that they didn't. And um, a lot of it had to do with disparities of care. And, you know, the rest of the story, a lot of it is uh, race-based and all the other issues that we have that makes this world so complicated and I have been on a personal mission and honored uh, to be a part of an organization who's in many ways leading the way with making sure that equity of care is administered to everyone. And so that's really my uh, life story of being influenced by healthcare. My mother is now 86 and uh, she's, uh, you know, weak, as she says, but she's still alive and uh, kicking full time.
0: Probably still kicking you. you once, <laughs> once a child, always a child. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, with, with your interest, you went to a Golden State University, got a BA in health service management, and then an MBA in health services administration. Right. Then you became an intern, got hired full time. But to relate to us, the, your, your first experience with working with people, stacks of slips, and uh, how, <laughs> what, what, what that taught you about
1: You know, I was finishing up my uh, master's degree at Golden Gate University, and I wanted to do uh, my residency program at uh, Kaiser Permanente. And I was fortunate that I went to the San Francisco Medical Center, and uh, uh, and there was this uh, really stern and tough but uh, wonderful uh, individual uh, named Alva Wheatley, and she hired me as a resident and uh, took me under her wings, and uh, I became uh, her student, if you will. She had me to go into the outpatient medical records department and to uh, do a study to figure out what was going on uh, in the area. They had some challenges and issues, and they were beginning the conversion more to the, at that time, version of electronic uh, information. And So I went in there and did the study, Um, actually had a great time. Uh, The most wonderful people were working in that area and got to know them. And uh, to this day, I think there are three or four who are still in the department, and I go and check on them every chance I get when I'm in San Francisco, because they had the first impact on me on managing uh, people. And... Uh, I did the study, I did the work, I went back and shared the findings, and she told me to now go implement them. And I said it would be hard to do that as a resident, but as a manager, I think that I can get that done. And then I got my first job to supervise that uh, department. And I still smile when I think about that first assignment. And that was the first time that um, I'll never forget when I was working with the staff. They were wonderful individuals who were committed to the organization. And I began to talk to them about they were not filing papers and they were not just running charts. They were a part of the medical care program and that what they were providing was critically important to the thousands of people who would be coming in for care. And if the physician didn't have the medical information, he or she would be lacking all of the information that they needed to make the most informed decision about that patient. And um, It's a challenge to this day. It's a challenge to this day. I'll also never forget uh, an incident that happened that, uh, has uh, been with me throughout my management life and executive life. I had a, we set a goal of something like eighty five percent or ninety percent. At the time, it was eighty five percent of the records will be available in the physician office before the appointment. And we were achieving the 85% and we really were feeling good about it. And the team was feeling good because they hit this goal and everything. And one day I got this irate call from a physician and he said that his medical record was not available for that appointment. And I apologized in a sincere way. But then I also said, but you need to understand, you know, we have hit the 85% goal and we will continue to work to make it better. And he said to me, I could care less about achieving an 85% goal when that one chart is in that 15%. And I never forgot that. And that's what I think about all the time. It's one thing to hit the goal, but then what does it mean when there's, in this case, 15% that's not getting it? And it, it it's that's a lesson really,
0: that these statistics are people.
1: That's right. Those are people. And those are individuals. And so... Yeah, it's great that I got eighty-five out of the hundred, but what about those fifteen? And you know, and then you relate that to healthcare. That's that's serious business. And so you know, it's that goal of wanting to have everything available for our wonderful caretakers and providers, physicians and nurses and others who are making life and death situations and also giving advice. To help people to live healthy lives, we want to make sure they have all the tools available to them to absolutely make what we call evidence based decisions.
0: Before we get to your pioneering work at uh, Kaiser Permanente and trying to make that a reality, um, a general question Why is healthcare so expensive? You've said yourself, healthcare is unaffordable. Uh, why are we so much more expensive than foreign countries? Now, some will say it's because they ration and we don't, but uh, g- give us some of your insights on that.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, if you if you step back and look at the, if you will, as I often talk about, the origin of healthcare, it, it really came about as um, we we as society, we as we as people started living longer. And then stuff, as I call it, sophisticated word stuff, started happening to our bodies. Yes,
0: I've noticed that as I've gotten older.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm picking up on a couple of signs that I'm uh, in denial about. But um, then our wonderful medical profession at the time began to figure out ways to, as I call it, fix me, a fix me system. So... You know, we waited until the body gave us some signal that something was wrong. And then all of a sudden, we brought all these resources to bear. And then over time, you know, we sort of um, uh, hobbled the health system together. So you have all these— it wasn't designed. Right. It wasn't designed. So you have these these silos, and you have the hospitals, and you have the pharmacy— And you have lab and you have uh, x-ray and you have physicians and you have and you have all this all in, you know, separate organizations or entities or stovepipes. And and what you have is a system overall where everybody is chasing the dollar, as I call it. And so it's finance based on volume. And as you know, we're starting to finally shift to the narrative of let's talk about value. But it's based, it was based on volume that you got paid for doing things. And so people kept doing things. And this is not an ethical issue at, uh, that I'm trying to make in terms of it was just the incentive system was designed where you got paid to do the procedures. And so that's part of what happened. Then on top of that, the government did what the government does. It just added more and more regulations, Right. So that adds more and more administrative costs. And so you end up adding bodies and adding people to do all of the oversight or requirements of a highly regulated industry. And then then the third piece, I would say, is if you look at what I call the big differences in the cost in the United States versus outside of the United States, it's wages and benefits, it's, it's compensation, it's the price of the care. And so our pay structure in the United States is much higher than anywhere else around the world. And uh, that's our reality, how much it costs uh, both to even go to school to become a physician, for example, and then what we pay physician who actually are the most trusted individuals, as you know, of anyone, uh, just about in our nurses, et cetera, in this country. So they are incredible resources that um, is mission critical to any organization providing care um, and is very expensive. And then you go to issues like the pharmaceutical industry, the price of drugs that is always associated with the research and everything. But... uh, I would argue there are structural problems that causes the price of drugs to um, be priced at a level, as I call it, because we can. That um, when you get past the the justification, you just do it because you can.
0: Let's just divert to that for one, one moment. PBMs, Pharmaceutical Benefit Managers, huge part of the system. People really don't know it, but it's almost half the price of a drug.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's part of the structural um, remake that I would argue we need to all think about as we think about pharmaceutical drugs uh, uh, in this country. Also, I'm careful. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I want to be clear about that. You know, I I never thought in my lifetime that I I will be thinking about uh, drugs that cure. So... This is a new day that we're living in now. So most people in the healthcare field think about how to manage care issues and how to provide quality where people can live with, you know, chronic diseases. And for Kaiser Permanente, we work hard to go upstream for early detection, early diagnoses, early treatment, which by the way is the best form of medical care, is to catch it early. And that comes through tests and through evidence-based medicine and all the things that you know about. Uh, But care is very um, expensive. And the objective is to keep it as affordable as absolutely possible. And so you have all these issues that you're dealing with. And so the fact that we have a drug, for example, that really was the change in the narrative that was able to cure hepatitis C, uh, presented new challenges for us in the industry, wonderful opportunities that here is an opportunity to give a drug to a person, and you can cure uh, hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is a disease that is in the major population. So the issue that it raises is who can afford it? And so now it is an issue that we all need to think about in this country, about how do we think about who should get what when it comes to health care? And you have a drug that if you belong to Kaiser Permanente and you need it, the physician orders it and we give it to you. And there's no questions asked. And we've done that from day one and we will always do that. But what if you don't belong to some of the organizations who can cover the cost of this? What happens to you? Well, there are many people walking around with hepatitis C that is not being administered the drug. And so it's those kind of issues now that we have to think about as we think about making healthcare available and affordable. And the affordability issue is the big issue.
0: Jumping to that, you've made the point that you don't, you're not in favor of single-payer But you do believe in universal coverage, and you think it can be done best by bringing in private companies to make that a reality.
1: Well, yes. I mean, I think it's both a private-public partnership. Right. And I actually approach it more from a practical standpoint. Um, Number one, uh, through government-funded programs and private insurance, you have 90-plus percent of Americans covered. Number two, I would argue we have enough in the toolkit that if we are willing to continue to make the necessary changes from either a regulatory standpoint, like the Affordable Care Act, um, and or to continue to create a competitive environment for organizations like mine to compete with other organizations— it works, if you will, like a market system, and that's what we really want. Number two, when you talk about um, universal uh, access, when you talk about um, single payer system, it is a conversation about coverage. And the affordability issue in healthcare are two parts it's about affordability of coverage. And I would say over the last decade, for example, in the affordability of coverage, the industry has created all kind of products where you, in essence, shift the total costs on the backs of either the company and or the working Americans. And what has happened is as that cost has continued to go up and that shifting of costs continued across this dynamic, you end up with individuals who might have a low premium, but they have a high deductible. And so, (laughs) so you got coverage and it's affordable, but then you need care. And so you go to the doctor or you go to the hospital and you discover that you have a thousand dollar bill that you have to pay before the quote insurance kick in. And so that's the problem that we have to deal with. Well, The root of that problem, I would argue, is in the inefficiency of care in our country that we still have to work on. And so I'm more interested in policies and protocols that will force us as a country to deal with things like evidence-based medicine, to deal with things like what's the infrastructure that all health systems should be required to have to create more efficiencies in providing care across the country. And how to think about some of the building blocks of that. I mean, Kaiser Permanente has invested billions in our infrastructure. So we have a technology backbone for our physicians. Um, We have uh, an integrated health system where information flows freely amongst the providers. Uh, I was in to see uh, my dermatologist on a small issue I had the other day. And he was there dictating while he was working on me. He was using a voice dictator unit, and it was putting the stuff on the screen, and I was fascinated uh, with that. And he enjoyed talking to me about how we're building more efficient ways for us to track the data and the information. We have, you know, uh, a lot of our members now use this, uh, the cell phone to interact with our physicians very directly through secure messaging, which is efficient because the member doesn't have to come in for everything. And in some cases, you could take a picture and send it to the doctor. They can interpret it, and they can send it around. And so that is all about creating more efficiency and better satisfaction for, in our case, our 12.4 million members. Well, we need to think about that at the national level as well. What is the system of healthcare? care? that we should be designing um, in this this country. And then finally, you know, one of the things I know hopefully we'll touch on, the the whole new frontier, if you will, is how to really develop the right system for mental health, which is an issue that plays the entire nation, in fact, the entire world. And so how do we, as I call it, reconnect the head to the body as part of total health and a lot of issues are going on with mental health and the impact of mental health that we don't speak about enough in this country to really figure out how do we address that
0: we're going to get to that and one of the points you've made is that uh, there's still a stigma about uh brain diseases mental health used to see it with cancer decades ago right and uh, we've got to overcome that and uh, this then gets to uh, community care, uh, talking about mental health. You've pointed out that more than one half of all bankruptcies are attributed to medical care, which is not good for your mental health, among other things. Right. And your whole point on uh, not just fixing something, but trying to make sure it doesn't get unfixed in the first place. Uh, talk through, you have a, a community officer now, health right. officer. right. Uh, recognizing that what you eat, uh, heredity, exercise, what you have nutrition, being able to uh, get care at home, homelessness, you're tackling all of that, that uh, people would say, well, isn't that out, outside your lane? And you make the point, no, you got to connect it all, or you're going to uh, continue to have a dysfunctional fix-it system instead of a holistic system.
1: Yeah, that that's uh, you said that very well. <laughs> <laughs> I've been yeah, listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> but the 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 journey that we're on is the 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 full creation of a, a total health ecosystem for uh, our members and for the communities in which we exist. Which is and why you
0: talk about 13 million and 67 million.
1: That's exactly right because um, you know, there's a, there, there are fundamental questions that we're trying to address. What makes up a community now? And how are resources uh, brought to bear and or best utilized in community settings? And what we are discovering, of course, is that, you know, direct health care has a small impact on the total health of an individual. And so uh, Kaiser Permanente that, that, has that, been that, on that, this that, That's something
0: very important for people to to realize. I've heard of numbers 10, 11 percent. Right. But uh, the, the other 89, if you don't address, you're going to always have problems with that 10 or 11.
1: That's right. We talk a lot in Kaiser Permanente and in the industry about we can predict more about your health outcome and your lifespan based on your zip code. Meaning where you live, we can we have data now that shows um, what happens in a population or in an area where you're living in an unsafe environment, where there's high crime rates, where you don't have grocery stores, uh, you name it. Uh, the your lifespan is significantly less than in a population where there's. Uh, The economy is working and you have choices and you can go out into the outside environment. And so this this issue around a total health system that we're creating is not a feel-good program. It is designed and will be designed to best help individuals achieve what we call total health, which is maximizing your healthy life years. And so we have gone into every one of our communities in which we exist, and we look for things like the crime rate, and we look Gun for violence. violence, and we look for um, grocery stores, and what is the baseline economy in that area? Is a high unemployment? Uh, is the crime rate high? How the school systems work? We are working to adopt every school district inside of Kaiser Permanente because that's going way upstream to help the children and their families to get a better start, if you will, towards total health with materials and education and different ways of coping with growing up uh, in the 21st century. So something as
0: basic as uh, awareness can have a huge impact on patterns.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, Awareness, um, tools to deal with, resilience. Uh, how do I come back after a stressful day? Or what can I do to learn to cope with my realities that I have to deal with? And and so um, um, we're looking at homelessness as part of the initiative that um, all the issues that we're talking about are high stressors and or the realities of life. And so the total health system is looking at what we're now calling social care, and that's really partnerships with the government. That's working with the local governments. That's working with the state and at the federal level. And what I think is the best model, which are private-public partnerships. We have skills and competencies inside of Kaiser Permanente that we want to work with the cities and provide that competency to solve to bigger complex problems. That's what we do every single day. So the the government is a big part of the scenario. And what we're trying to do is to bring our expertise, bring our resources, and create um, the power of the government and private to do greater good, which would be an even more efficient use of the overall dollar that floats around in our communities.
0: You've made the point, uh, we spend a huge amount of resources on the last 18 months of our lives. You say, we, didn't, we don't want to affect that, but we also should look at making sure resources are going before those last 18 months.
1: Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, what, what we can actually prove in Kaiser Permanente with the fantastic work of our care teams and others are a variety of things that— um, You know, I always make the point that we're not talking about cutting people short of resources towards the end of life in society. That's far from it. But as we get more effective and efficient in understanding a person and what they're dealing with and getting on top of, in some cases where they have chronic diseases, how to manage those diseases with an integrated delivery system like Kaiser Permanente, but also to go in their homes and to go in their communities and to work on building what we call a healthy community, where um, it is part of a more overall approach that maximizes the healthy life years, even with the chronic management illnesses that they may be dealing with. And then how do we, um, in some cases, help to prepare individuals for the latter years of life about choices that they want to make, about how they want care to be provided towards the end of life and making sure that they have all the information and the evidence-based information about options for care and how they want to think about, um, you know, towards that latter end of life. And um, I think that, you know, in most cases, as the evidence has shown in our country, we bring all the resources to bear uh, towards the last six to 18 months of a person's life. and. Many have evaluated that and have said, is that really the best way to deal with in-the-life care? And so we deal with palliative care. We have hospice care. We have programs that helps people deal with um, those, you know, years in which the health is truly failing. And we do that um, solely through the medical practice uh the, quote, health plan side has nothing to do with that because we never want anyone to think that's about saving a dollar or anything else like that. It's really dealing with what we call the dignity of end of life care. And that's a critical part of how we need to think in this country about the delivery of care as a system, meaning the United States level of system of care and really, you know, face these issues with how do we provide care from prevention to end of life. And that's the total health picture that we have to create.
0: You've, you've mentioned the importance of prevention. The old saying, an uh, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, if, in terms of reaching people at an early age, can you give us a couple of quick examples of where by getting people aware early you save a whole lot of problems later?
1: Oh, I mean, we do it every day. Um, you know, every year uh, in our uh, in the Kaiser Permanente system, we help to, as I call it, facilitate uh, bringing over 120,000 babies into the world. And I say it that way because I used to say, we brought 100,000 babies in the world last year, and I had a mom to tell me one time, you had nothing to do with the pain and suffering I went through to bring this baby in the world. And I brought this baby, so I'm very clear that we facilitate (laughs) that process happening. But at that stage, that's where we can uh, teach the mom and teach the dad. And, you know, we have now experiments with early reading programs and how do we help a mom and a dad as they're getting started in life so they're educated about some of the facts that we know about reading to a child early on and how to think about the foods that they're going to be eating. And that's a great moment that people are willing to really listen and to internalize it. And so it starts there, for example. Um, We have probably the best physical program for kids. Um, And so we spend a lot of time in our relationship with children and the parents as they are growing up, with the physicals and teaching them about their bodies and uh, classes that we sponsor and or deliver that children come to. We spend a lot of time educating children about their health and what's going on. And now with the with the uh, platform that we have of of uh, technology, kids can interact directly with our systems and learn things about their body and understand what's going on and those kinds of issues. We have wonderful tracking programs for our members, and our members talk about us in that way, that, oh, my God, you— Kept sending me a notice to come in for my physical or come in for my blood tests, and we have that rhythm uh, inside of Kaiser What's Permanente. A key word, rhythm, the, uh, the rhythm. Right, we have that rhythm inside of Kaiser Permanente, where you know, and we're very clear about the kinds of tests that we want you to have. That's all evidence based. I mean, and that's an important term that we're not just asking you to come in because we think it might be helpful. We have the evidence to prove that at a certain age you should have these tests done. and Are you so finding that?
0: in terms of your community work that uh, governments and uh, local institutions respond when you point out that this area has a disproportionate uh, impact of asthma attacks or respiratory problems and uh, here's what we might do about it? Yeah. Oh,
1: absolutely. Uh, you know, absolutely. There are, there are wonderful people. Uh, in the governments, in community associations and organizations. I mean, you have a lot of people um, working hard every single day to try to make our communities a better place to live. And so you take a big organization like Kaiser Permanente, what we can go in and do is to work with those organizations and in some cases resource those organizations at the next level. Or in other cases, We can go in and bring our competency as a large organization. We know how, for example, to scale up projects, right? And so we could go into a community and find an organization that's doing fantastic work, like an organization in California that's working on the homelessness that we went in, and we work with that organization. We're not specialists in homelessness. That's a complex issue. But as we talk to and work with these organizations who are working on this every single day, we can pick up on patterns and we can see small, um, innovative solutions that's been created. Well, we can then bring our skill of scaling it up and start to look at how do we take that good idea and scale it. And that's where we can work with the government and others to say, if you resource this in this way, we can design a system that uh, we will all be able to leave someday and that system will still be in place to deal with these kind of complex issues. So that's where it comes together in public-private partnerships is really bringing, you know, the totality of the skills together to solve down complex the silos. problems and breaking down silos.
0: As you can see, Bernard Tyson was a very unique individual. And next week, we'll have our second part of our conversation. And now, my reads for the week. The first one is called Trump's Tariffs Did Nothing to Boost the Steel Industry. It's written by Max Golker, G-U-L-K-E-R, at the American Institute for Economic Research. You can find that online at A-I-E-R dot org. That's A-I-E-R dot org. Well, despite this protectionism... The steel industry is now hurting. Why? Because its customers are hurting because of the higher prices. So while the stock market has done very well, steel stocks are down significantly since these tariffs were put in place. The second reading is called Beyond Great Forces, How Individuals Still Shape History. Written by Daniel Byman and Kenneth Pollack. For Foreign Affairs magazine, you can find it online at foreignaffairs.com. Since the 1950s, there's been a growing movement in history to say that history is shaped by forces, not by individuals. Well, this article makes the point, yes, leaders have to respond to conditions, leaders have to respond to institutions and forces within their countries, but they still have an enormous impact on how their countries move forward or backwards. Vladimir Putin, very different from his predecessor, has put Russia on an anti-American course. There are other rivals to Putin 20 years ago who'd have done going in the opposite direction. Turkey is run by a virtual dictator, Erdogan, who has taken Turkey away from its pro-Western stance that it had since World War I. He made an enormous difference. Saudi Arabia, which was once a country that sort of tried to stay by the sidelines, go along with the U.S. for security, but keep a low profile and just hope that oil money kept coming in, Well, the prospective monarch, a fellow named Mohammed bin Salman, foreign policy experts call him MBS, so if you're at a cocktail party, you make a remark about Saudi Arabia and then make a remark about MBS, it shows you're in the know. But he's profoundly changed Saudi Arabia's course, both with internal reforms and what he's done in foreign affairs. Whether he's intervening forcefully in the Yemen civil war, which has not worked out well, even kidnapping for a while the Prime Minister of Lebanon, murdering a journalist. This man is really different from what Saudi Arabia saw in the past. And in Germany, Chancellor Merkel, making the decision several years ago to bring in hundreds of thousands of refugees. This was highly unpopular both in Germany and in the rest of the European community. Helped lead to Britain voting to leave the European community in 2016, led to the rise of extremist parties in Germany, So, individuals still are the big shapers of history. Final one, called Global Governments Still Coming to Terms with America's Energy Abundance. It's written by Holly Elliott. Her last name is spelled E-L-L-Y-A-T-T. You can find it on CNBC.com. In the fourth quarter of next year, for the first time in over half a century, the U.S. will become truly energy independent, both in oil, liquid natural gas. This not only means a change in our dependence on the Middle East and other volatile areas of the world, but also brings in a sharp focus. Which way will Europe go? We can provide Europe ultimately with its natural gas needs, but forces in Germany and elsewhere want to rely on Russia. So this has big power play implications as well. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.